Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. Today is June 17th, 2022, and on this date, 50 years ago, a bunch of ne'er-do-wells operating on behalf of President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C., and in doing so sparked a constitutional crisis. In remembrance of that event, I present to you a panel of historians who have studied the event, who will discuss the international and domestic political contexts of Watergate, the break-in and investigations, and the long and short-term consequences of this episode on American political and constitutional history. So uh, before we get into talking about, you know, the the context of Watergate, what happened in Watergate, the consequences of Watergate, I'd like to introduce the uh, folks who are going to be talking about Watergate here today. So I'm going to go around and let them introduce themselves. Um, I'll just name a a, a participant. And if you could give us a, like I said, a one or two sentence introduction to who you are, um, you know, what's your name, what do you do? And we'll go from there. So uh, let's start with uh, Adam. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name's Adam Lehman. I'm an associate professor of history at uh, Guilford Technical Community College in uh, North Carolina. Mike, can you introduce yourself? Uh, yes, um, Mike Green. I teach for Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, well, right now as an adjunct, but I also teach at um, SUNY Polytechnic Institute at, uh, here in um, Utica, New York. Great. Uh, mostly thank American you. history, though. Uh, thank you. Uh, Eric, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Eric Morganson. Um, I'm teaching at uh, a couple schools around here in Denver uh, and then also at SNHU. Uh, I'm a historian of uh, modern Jewish history and modern um, neoconservatism. And Ryan, can you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Ryan Tripp. I teach here at SNU as an adjunct. I also teach at uh, Los Banos College and a variety of other California community colleges and universities. I guess my uh, teaching record uh, runs the gamut of U.S. and world history. And Joel, can you round us out? My name is Joel Cherney. I am an adjunct at Southern New Hampshire University teaching uh, general history, but also civil war. And I also have a large amount of work in uh, post-World War II history, particularly Cold War. I also host podcasts on the New Books Network, mostly dealing with film, but I also do history and political related interviews as well. All right, great. So we have a really informed group of uh, participants for this roundtable here. So I'm looking forward to seeing where we go with this. Um, so since we are historians, we can and we can never really just focus on the immediate matter at hand. I figure we can start by talking about the context in which the uh, Watergate um incident, whatever you want to call it, break in and then the cover up and all of that. Let's talk a little bit about the context in which that happened. So, um what was going on in the in the world? We'll start kind of at the at the world level, and then we'll zoom in on the uh, domestic politics a little bit. But if we could talk with, uh, let's start with uh, Adam and uh, and Mike. Uh, what was going on in the world in the years before the Watergate break-in that you think are relevant to this discussion? Well, um, I usually start with more than uh, the domestic at the time because you know the United States is going through this huge uh, division in the United States. Um, you know, 1968 was the, of course, uh, pivotal year for presidential elections. We had another nail biter that year with the three people winning. And Nixon becomes, of course, barely wins that election, uh, popular vote wise. 
And um, so Nixon coming out of the coming into this election, he had promised to uh, win the war in Vietnam. He had a secret plan. He really didn't have one, as we know. Um, but he promised to bring the country together, and and he well he wouldn't do that. And um, so Watergate kind of begins at this beginning, where in the early stages of the Nixon administration, during the transition, Henry Kissinger, who becomes the um, um, national security advisor, brings in Daniel Ellsberg, aha, uh, who had been a consultant for, of course, the. Uh, Defense Department for many years and had wrote the McNamara Report, which is – well, helped get involved with the McNamara Report is what we call the Pentagon Papers, which you know talks about the entire history of Vietnam. And so we've got a lot of turmoil going on in the country, a lot of division, um, much like we see today, unfortunately, but in a different way. I mean people were really uh, divided over the issue of Vietnam and um, – you know, Nixon, again, wants to win this war. He wants to win the war. That's why, how he wants to end it, but that's not what he, you know, that, he never really got specific about what he was going to do. And um, eventually, you know, as a result of this, uh, what happens, of course, is the uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who has been working for the, uh, um, de- well, working for the Defense Department, uh, uh, he was a former Marine, Marine and had been in Vietnam. He knew what was going on in Vietnam. Uh, And so Kissinger, you know, asks him in a very good point blank, you know, what, you know, what are what's going on? And, you know, how can we win this war? And Ellsberg's trying to kind of nicely tell the new national security advisor, there's really no way we can really win this war (laughs) because this is, you know, we've been doing this for almost 20 years now. And it's not, you know, we haven't really uh, done very well uh, without getting into, into too many details there. And so that's where we kind of start getting into uh, this attitude that starts to form in the Nixon White House, sort of of the the us versus them kind of attitude um, among the uh, uh, you know the, among the uh, people who are um, anti-war versus uh, Nixon, who is a cold warrior, and um, thinking of course that Vietnam is a honorable mission that we have to you know save the world from democracy. Or excuse me, communism. Uh-huh, I knew I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> save the world for democracy, but you know where I'm going. And so, you know, this is where you know this attitude starts. And uh, finally, when uh, Ellsberg, uh, who becomes famous for uh, re- leaking these Pentagon papers, uh, the Nixon Kissinger just goes nuts, uh, and he tells Nixon, "Look, you know." If you don't crack down on these leaks, um, you know, nobody will trust you in the world. Nobody will listen to you. And, of course, um, this is where uh, his chief of staff and his policy advisor, uh, Bob Halderman and John Ehrlichman, get together and they start to form what is now, we now call the plumbers. So the, the you got to look at Nixon's actions sort of in context of a much more uh, broader and global perspective, because Nixon inherited, uh, I'm going to say, uh, probably, uh, I don't know, a complicated mess uh, to start with mm-hmm. that uh, under because uh, he was vice president under Eisenhower. And so he's kind of stuck with both the Truman Doctrine and the, the Eisenhower Doctrine to where he's uh, got to try to contain communism. And so. He uh, was one of the guys who tried to uh, 
uh, to establish CETO, which was the Southeast uh, Asian uh, Treaty Organization, which was supposed to be very similar to NATO, but unfortunately, it it did not. Uh, the yeah, that just did not work well together. Uh, and so he's trying to uh, to stem the tide from uh, from uh, Vietnam. And as a result, it uh, puts him in really an awkward position because he lost the uh, he lost he lost the Kennedy uh, for the vice or for the presidency, and then he lost the uh, governor race in California. And so everybody kind of wrote Nixon off. They kind of thought, you know, right. uh, he he wasn't going to be able to do anything. And so part of his uh, comeback strategy in '68 was to uh, you know basically uh, try to achieve uh, uh, peace with honor. Uh, in Vietnam, because uh, and and as a result, uh, he's you know uh, uh, after the Pentagon Papers come out, uh, now he just starts looking. Uh, you know, the paranoia takes over the uh, and the, one of the reasons that he was able to be so successful in '68 against the the Democratic Party was as they were divided uh, after the assassination of uh, of, uh, of of Bobby Kennedy. And right. uh, so there's all this. Uh, so I don't think Nixon thought he could win uh, in 72 without kind of, uh, you know, going to these means to these measures, because you can see him uh, reach out to Moscow to reach out to Beijing. And he visits both uh, Russia and uh, China in an effort to uh, kind of uh, put a lid on Vietnam, uh, trying to uh, uh Basically, uh, you find a way to extradite American troops through the, the Vietnamization uh, after he gets elected in 68. And all his plans, you know, uh, the Pentagon Papers that just kind of blew that up. And mm -hmm. uh, he never quite recovered. I, I don't think it ever, uh, you know, when you look at it in the context of the Cold War, and 68 is really one of those pivotal years because that's when the Russians rolled into Hungary and uh, stomped down on uh the uh, reforms that they were trying to do. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, you had a, a lot of civil unrest because 68 is also the year when, uh, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So you have uprisings uh, within the United States. So Nixon's sort of this law and order candidate where he has to, uh, it, it's almost like he's, uh, pushes himself uh, to, to take extreme measures to, to achieve his goals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, don't forget in 68, you had all these other protests like in places like, uh, you know, France, um, uh, you know, because de Gaulle, you know, of all people, you know, de Gaulle ends up, you know, um, leaving the presidency. And um, and it's within that context, you know, you, you know, uh, Adam's absolutely right, because within that context, Nixon, uh, what he does is he uh, this is where you get the formation of what later becomes what they called the Houston plan. Uh, but it actually becomes this, you know, operation to, you know, uh, keep tabs on their enemies. They call them the plumbers because they're going to plug the leaks. <laughs> what a, how clever. And, um, you know, the first thing that the plumbers unit does is they're trying as they're trying to, uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, be legitimate on the world stage, um, you know, go to Moscow, go to Beijing. I mean, these were great achievements, too. I mean, we can't dismiss that. And um, at the same time. Um, Nixon finds out that, you know, all the these communist countries who, you know, the USSR, but in particular China, who we kept saying, well, you know, they're involved in North Vietnam. He finds out that 
they're not as involved as they really were. I mean, they may have been given weapons to the North Vietnamese, but really they're not, they're not holding, uh, calling the shots that, that, you know, we, we suspected. So, and again, we have to have this sort of shift in policy afterwards. And at the same time, you know, during this period, you know, it's these plumbers who are trying to, at home, have sort of a domestic campaign, this covert campaign to, to discredit their quote unquote enemies, the, those anti-war people who are, um, somehow there's this thing that they think they're sort of backed by, you know, some of the communist left-wing groups or whatever, and that's not necessarily true, of course. And they, this is where you get uh, the break-in in, in, 19, in September of 1971 of Dr. Fielding's uh, office in, I think, San Francisco or something like that. It was uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist. They were trying to get the dirt on uh, Daniel Ellsberg. And so this is where that kind of mentality begins. And as Al's right, you know, Nixon comes in here, he's a cold warrior and we're going to be, you know, we're going to be strong and we're not going to, uh, you know, you know uh, show any weakness in, in this kind of uh, atmosphere. And uh, that's sort of how this paranoia starts to begin. Yeah, thank you for that. And let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the the other kind of aspects of the domestic political situation in the U.S. around the time that Nixon was first elected and then uh, moving into 72 when he got reelected. Um, let's uh, hear from uh, Eric and Ryan a bit about the uh, what were the what was the political um, spectrum? What, what did it look like in 1968 and how did that contribute to we've touched a little bit on how it contributed to Nixon's kind of personal paranoia. But how did it set the stage for uh, for what came later in the late 60s and early 70s? What was what was going on in the kind of the domestic political sphere at that point? I can uh, talk a little bit about the Democrats, and then we can shift over, perhaps, to the Republicans. Eric, does that sound fine to you? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. So uh, around 1968, what you're seeing is, of course, uh, LBJ has decided not to uh, run again for president. Um, well, was it ultimately his decision or not? I mean, he's he's pretty much pressured by the party. Um, you see a number of candidates uh, begin to separate himself themselves, excuse me, from uh, the LBJ administration and from the Democratic Party, particularly after um, or the events leading up to the uh, DNC, the Democratic National Convention, and the protests there, um, the Chicago Seven, et cetera. And uh, you know, a, a number of the uh, candidates are not uh, really that into um, LBJ representing the Democratic Party anymore. I mean, chief among them, of course, is Robert F. Kennedy, correct? He's um, he's becomes really the uh, leading candidate for the Democratic Party pretty quickly. Um, he, of course, is assassinated, and that kind of uh, takes the uh, – it really shakes – the uh, Democratic Party to the core. Um, they end up going with Hubert Humphrey from Minnesota, who is, I mean, he's a well-known national, he's a well-known uh, political figure, but uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, people don't uh, really, really know him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he, um, he, he really wanted to, um, to, uh, be a little bit more well-known, promoted himself um, as a, a national candidate. He's already affiliated with uh, certain uh, the Johnson administration, but a lot of people don't uh, 
aren't really familiar with him um, as a presidential candidate. Um, that said, uh, he makes a go of it. And of course, uh, uh, Nixon triumphs. Now, I think I also wanted to add, too, that uh, in the late 60s and going into the early 70s, uh, we ha you're also seeing the uh, kind of the dissolution of the uh, Great Society and the War on Poverty, right? And what does this have to do with Watergate? Well, I think in some ways, uh, uh, you know, there's circulating ideas regarding, uh, you know, the so-called Rockefeller cabinet, the Rockefeller Re Republicans, the moderate Republicans, and, um, you know, different ways that uh, the Nixon administration uh, approaches um, ideas of uh, poverty and there's kind of uh, ethno-racial underpinnings to this, um, you know, and I'm sure Eric will go into that um, uh, during Nixon's first term, but uh, we're, we're definitely seeing Republican committees in Congress um, questioning uh, the dispersal of funds and how funds are, are used through the war on poverty. Uh, and finally, too, we have the looming uh, specter of OPEC, which actually has more to do with uh, the public's reactions to Watergate um, than anything else. Um, so at least in the late 60s and early 70s, that's what I'm seeing. Um, and then, of course, to the uh, the McGovern campaign and uh, the Watergate babies after in the early 70s. But um, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we can come back to that in a sec. So, um, Eric, what did you have to uh, what do you think about the Republicans at that point? Sure. I'm actually going to go back a little bit to 1964 uh, in my discussion um, and just kind of a, to give an idea, a little bit of context as to what Republicans were were having to deal with. Right? Like what Nixon was um, kind of trying to in some way separate himself from, but also try and embrace. Uh, and that's the Goldwater campaign in 1964. Um, so. Just a little little bit background. Uh, Barry Goldwater was very, very, very conservative by by his own, um, you know, by his his own stance. He was very, very conservative, uh, and he's um, probably most famous in history for uh, the advertisement that I like to show in class, the the famous Daisy ad that didn't air very much, but uh, kind of became emblematic of the 1964 election, uh, where it's a little girl, um, you know, pulling the uh, playing with a with a flower, and then there's a nuclear bomb that goes off and it was basically saying if you vote for uh, for Goldwater, you're voting for nuclear war, right? And so uh, you had this very, very conservative uh, Republican as the nominee. Um, he's going to uh, uh, he's going to lose to to LBJ, and Nixon is kind of in a position where you know he, he, Goldwater gets a lot of the core Republicans very excited, right? That that core conservative group, but. He clearly can't can't get anybody else excited, right? Uh, he loses in a landslide uh, in '64, and so um, in this in this kind of national uh, uh, context, you know, Republicans had just lost this last national election by this huge margin, and Nixon kind of needs this support of these core conservatives, but he also needs to expand a little bit, right? Um, Goldwater is very much anti-New Deal. You know, the New Deal is still. Uh, relatively popular at this time, although uh, there are historians who argue that this 1968 election is kind of this changing point with the rise of the uh, the rise of the right and the rise of the Republican Party. Um, but right now, the New Deal is at least popular enough that uh, most people don't want to dismantle it, right? Don't want to do kind of a, a gold water to it. Uh, so the Republican Party is having to work within that context. And one thing that I 
thought was interesting um, and in dealing with all of, you know, the, the trying to reset the Republican Party a little bit and then also dealing with all of this uh, political chaos and social chaos going on at home. Uh, I actually looked up the Republican Party platform from 1968 and I found a very um, interesting, you know, it, it's a very interesting mix of we want local control, but then we also support some of these New Deal type of programs, right? They talk about uh, uh, things like healthcare, right? And and some of it reads as uh, what, what you could read today is almost liberal, right? In its reading of, of what the Republican Party in 1968 wants. And so it's this mix of kind of the local control that, that Goldwater really wanted, right? He was very much um, probably more in line with, with Republicans now, where it's, you know, this emphasis on, on what's going on, you know, we, we want local control over things, um, but then also a, a um, more liberal, uh, I wouldn't say an embrace of the New Deal, but at least, you know, they, they're not rejecting the New Deal. So uh, there's a quote from this Republican Party platform that I thought was really interesting. It says, a uh, peaceful, reunified America with opportunity and orderly progress for all. These are our overriding domestic goals, right? So they're trying to present themselves as this party of unity, right? The party that brings everybody together in this chaos of the late 1960s uh, with, you know, with, with riots going on in the cities, with the Vietnam War, uh, with the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, um, all of these various political assassinations, right? And all this political violence. Uh, so the Republican Party is trying to, um, you, you get the, this idea of the silent majority, right, that, that Nixon really starts to articulate uh, a little bit later on. Um, but he's trying to appeal to people who want calm, right? They, they want this calm. Uh, and at the same time, you see kind of the, the racialized undertones of the Nixon um, administration, too, uh, where talking about things, you know, like law and order and kind of urban violence. And so he's really trying to in some ways, um, um, rebuild, I, I would argue, rebuild the Republican Party a little bit, like make it a little bit more uh, mainstream than under Goldwater, but then also trying to play up some of these divisions that are going on, right? Some of the, the racialized divisions, some of the kind of uh, uh, urban versus suburban divisions, right? Divisions over the Vietnam War. Uh, and so at the same time that you see the Republican Party kind of vocalizing, hey, we're, we're trying to unify everybody, you also see, you know, stoking of these divisions, right? And and trying to uh, play up these divisions as much as possible. So it's kind of this interesting, uh, almost a dichotomy between the uh, uh, between the two and what the Republican Party is doing. Yeah, I like the way you uh, kind of put that that you're trying, that they're trying to rebuild the Republicans, and that's certainly the case for not just uh, Nixon, but there were others that were trying to do that too. Uh, my own research into Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California in the uh, late '60s, early '70s, was kind of just like that. That he was trying to put together a Republican uh, coalition in California um, that you know is um, is different. You know, the, the, the electorate in California was different than the electorate, you know, at large across the United States. But uh, he was trying to put together a new Republican Party that was based on um, kind of efficiency, cooperation, collaboration by almost bipartisanship. It was in kind of stark contrast to what happened when he became president, you know, 15 years later. But while he was in office in California, I mean, that was when California took the lead on environmental uh, protections, for example. So there was a huge constituency within the Republican Party for clean air regulations and clean water regulations. And so 
it was a very different Republican Party, of course, than exists today. It was much more of a kind of a, a coalition of different groups. There were certainly the Goldwater conservatives who were all small government, low taxes and all that. But there were also other factions within the party that were trying to embrace, like you said, at the national level, trying to embrace or at least continue on the popular New Deal policies um, and even some great society policies that were very popular. Um, and but it, but in California, yeah, Reagan was, you know, Reagan signed one of the, the country's most expansive abor- uh, laws allowing abortion. Uh, and so there were a lot of ways that the Republicans were trying to kind of demonstrate or kind of present themselves as the mainstream America. I think that's probably a good way to put it. Um, and uh, in doing so, attract votes from the Democrats. And then like uh, like Eric and Ryan, both of you mentioned that the Democrats were pretty much falling apart at that point. You think about the, the you know, the 1968 Democratic Convention when there were all the riots outside and there were people nominating forget which group it was that actually nominated a pig for president out in the parking Mm -hmm. lot outside of the Democratic convention. So it looked like the Democrats were kind of scattered, especially in the wake of uh, uh, Robert Kennedy's death. Um, The Democrats were kind of falling apart. The Republicans were kind of trying to present themselves as, like you said, the new kind of silent majority. Let's bring everybody together. But in doing so, we're going to have to kind of take on a much more mainstream, at least face. Uh, But also it uh, again, with like the environmental regulation, with abortion, all that, there was a much greater kind of sense of we need to dem- we need to have more of a bipartisan kind of coalition view towards it. So, with all of that said, that that then we've got the kind of that political context. Let's focus on, let's focus on Nixon because, of course, he's the central player in, in all of this discussion about Watergate and all of that. So, um, Joel, we've kind of been talking about we've been mentioning Nixon's various issues, his paranoia, his kind of uh, obsession with security and all that. We've talked about that kind of in the context of the Cold War, in the context of Vietnam. So what can you tell us about Nixon, the man? Let's focus on just let's focus on him. And then uh, we can talk a little bit about, you know, how that led to things like Watergate and all of that. Well, one of the things uh, that comes out of reading and learning and the thing about Nixon is there's so much information available about him, probably Partly from his own uh, self, he was not somebody who was shy about writing, uh, even at, particularly, you know, between his memoirs afterwards. But there's a lot of information available about Nixon. The only negative I find sometimes is that, and it's one of those things with writing history, you want to try to avoid psychoanalysts, psychoanalyzing. And unfortunately, of all people that I can think of, especially even when he was in office, or around that period of time, it seems like a lot of writers love to, to try to psychoanalyze him. And they, over time, we've gotten all this information that everybody claims this is why he was the way he was. And I think we need to be careful of those kind of things because, as we know, psychohistory is not something that you can necessarily trust. But having said all that, um, he was a born in the 19 teens. Um, was a little older than John Kennedy. And in fact, as we, as, as over time, he and Kennedy were friends. They, uh, uh, both served in world war two in the Navy. Um, he, uh, was born in California to Quaker parents. Uh, one of the things you got to remember is when you think Quaker, it's, there's multiple Quaker groups. Um, it, it wasn't exactly the same kind of Quakers that we think of often with the, uh, total, 
you know, the nonviolence and, and peace aspect, although he had some of that is from his mother. Um, over time, he grew into a, a large family of which two of whom died uh, while he was still uh, at home, one from tuberculosis, which we don't know that now. But when we talk about diseases, tuberculosis was a terrible disease in the period and uh, many people died from it. Um and then he also had a brother, another brother who died. Um, and then over time, uh, he, he, his family was poor, very poor. His father could not grow oranges in California, uh, which, if you know anything about California, is somewhat unusual. So obviously he was not able to go to big schools. Um, his hope was to go away to school and lemon, as I said, not not oranges it was lemons but still it's the same concept um so he went to whittier college which is in california in the conservative area of california remember california as big as it is even back then had its liberal and conservative as it does now so it's not all for what we want to say sometimes it's not all liberals and it, even then it wasn't um so uh he graduated from college uh ends up going to yale for law school even though he went away for it, but he had a full scholarship for it, earned a degree, applied to work at the FBI of all places, and uh, did not get accepted. Um, years later, uh, he did talk with J. Edgar Hoover about it. Uh, anyway, so he comes back to California. And of course, at this point, then World War II begins, and he um, gets involved first off land in the United States working on, on various aspects relating to uh, supplies, but then he asks to go overseas, goes over, um, wasn't involved in combat, but certainly was in areas that were under combat. So he definitely qualifies as a, as a World War II veteran who, who saw combat, comes back, and as soon as he gets back to the United States, almost while he's still in the service, although he knows he's getting out soon, he's approached uh, by uh, a group of uh, first off one people, a group of people in California um, asking him if he wants to run for Congress in a district that had a Jerry Voorhees, who was a uh, liberal uh, congressman, had been in the office for a long for quite a while. Um, they the Republicans obviously wanted somebody who could beat him. So uh, he accepts. It ends up being a much more difficult campaign at first because of money issues more than anything. And it gets to the point that early on, even in this first campaign of his, where getting money becomes an issue. And this would be something we would see in virtu in, in his later campaigns as well. But eventually uh, he wins the primary very easily and then turns on Voorhees and starts almost immediately with what we would call these days dirty tricks and uh, terrible advertising. He would c come out with a list of things that Voorhees uh, 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 voted on in Congress and would then point it out like, here's what uh, the socialist or the left wingers in, in Congress and the uh, voted on and they would always be the same. And of course, Voorhees, the biggest problem they re he ran into more than anything was that he just didn't take Nixon seriously early on. And by the time he did, it was too late. He participated in debates with Nixon and Nixon wiped the floor with him. Nixon ends up winning the um, 
race, becomes congressman in 1946, uh, runs again in 1948, wins again. During this four-year period, up between 48 and 50, or 46 and 50, gets involved in the House on American Activities Committee and immediately gets involved, and this is where Alger Hiss and the famous uh, Alger Hiss uh, situation and trial and so on. And, and so clearly he gets involved in the, the idea of wanting to be pro, you know, in the Cold War, he obviously felt that uh, this was his calling. Um, he would uh, eventually be proven right to a large extent about Alger Hiss. I know at the time, People didn't want to believe it, but there has been pretty definite proof that Hiss was 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 definitely um, passing along information. But so then in 1950, uh, he decided, you know, it's a decision that he's going to run for Senate for California, rather move on to Senate. And um, once again, he runs against a Democratic congresswoman, Helen Gahagan Douglas, who um, was all was running on the Democratic ticket. And once again, he begins referring to her as the pink lady. Uh, the whole thing of let's talk about what we can do to downgrade the other person and, and innuendo and things like that ends up winning that Senate seat in 1950. And then two years later, when Eisenhower runs for president in 1952, for a variety of reasons, Nixon is um, selected as his vice presidential nominee. Almost immediately after getting the vice presidential nomination, Nixon, a story comes out about a slush fund that supposedly Nixon has that he's using for personal expenses. Obviously, over time, as Nixon, one of the things, and this would be the area where it really started, Nixon was always known for being very anti-press. He was the first person I can ever think of who referred to the press as the enemy, even though we've had that happen since. Um, but Nixon, other candidates were doing the same thing. The, the Adlai Stevenson, who was the Democratic candidate for president, he had an extra fund as well. But for whatever reason, Nixon's fund became um, the, the news. And unfortunately, he and Eisenhower, even though Eisenhower, over the eight years that they served together, would have him do a lot of things and, and felt he did a lot of things well, they were never very close. And almost immediately when the slush fund stories start to come out, Eisenhower is almost ready to dump him already, not even giving him a chance to do anything. Well, in the end, Nixon gets himself taken out of the problem by appearing on television, which at the time was something that was incredibly unusual. Think to yourself in 1952, television was still in its reasonable infancy. We're only talking about five years after it first started appearing in households. And yet he is able to come up with a speech that you can still see. It's available on YouTube and a variety of different places. There's actually a whole book refer that's just about the checker speech in which he is able to prove as far as he's concerned and get support. Later on, while the speech is going on, the mainstream uh, Republican leaders are looking at it and laughing at it almost, saying there's no way in the world this is going to work. They're all set to wait for him to dump, be dumped. And yet the person, the people, the people who were most likely going to be the voters, overwhelmingly supported him. He becomes obviously stays on the ticket. And for the next eight years, he's the vice president of the United States. Then we come up. There's obviously during that eight years, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. But 
we don't need to go into huge detail about all of it. So then we come to 1960. Once again, he feels he should be able to be the one, and he runs for president of the United States when Eisenhower is about to retire. Um, loses to Kennedy in 1960. Once again, debates become an interesting aspect of the whole thing. Um, although there is still a lot of question as to what, whether the debates won him or lost, you know, lost it for him. It, it, it's one of those things where a lot of folks, folks will say different things. Barely wins. Most likely or very likely there were some shenanigans in Illinois and Texas for the Democrats. No proof, but no definite proof, but there seems to be some issues. Uh, but he concedes Nixon, uh, Kennedy wins and Nixon theoretically is now done with running for politics for now. Um, doesn't say he's done completely, but as as we talked about a little earlier, 62, he runs for governor of California. Most people at the time weren't real happy. Republicans weren't happy with his campaign because it seemed almost like he was running for president. He kept talking about national issues and didn't seem to show that much interest in um, issues going on in California. But he gave a good raise, but still lost. And of course, then promptly announces that that was his. he has his final press conference or what he called his last press conference and everybody wrote him off. He's done. Well, during the next four years or six years, he um, works as a lawyer, makes some money, meets various people who end up being much help to him as he goes forward. He'd already met H.R. Haldeman by this point and Ehrlichman and left. And at that point, then um, he's acting like he's not going to run again. But almost immediately, he starts getting involved in politics again. He while he doesn't isn't a major player in the 64 election. He definitely supported Goldwater. He went around and spoke for Goldwater. He was at the convention speaking for Goldwater. And the major Republicans, the people, you, the, the background, the, the, the major people who um, were in the party really appreciated everything he did. Uh, even though, of course, as we've said, Goldwater fell apart, you know, lost terribly. But then within two years after Goldwater, Nixon pretty much says, I'm coming back. Um, he this was prior to where the primaries did everything. Uh, nowadays, we're just used to everything coming through with primaries back in the 60s and even before primaries often weren't really uh, that important. In fact, Hubert Humphrey, even though he ends up winning the Democratic uh, nomination in 68, did not enter a single primary. Um, it was still a matter where the party made the decision, where the delegates actually could control what they did. Uh, nowadays, it's almost impossible to go into a, a convention and not know who the candidate is. Well, Nixon has to fight. He's not going to necessarily win it all by himself. He goes with Rockefeller on the left. Rockefeller is considered a, a liberal Republican. Yes, there were such things back then. Um, and on the right, he had this little this guy in California who had been elected governor recently, good old Ronald Reagan, who this is the first time Reagan decides he might get involved. He is in the background, and he actually there's some worry at some point that the uh, the major conservatives still in the um, Republican Party are going to give the nomination to Reagan instead. But in the end, Nixon comes through the part of uh, the uh, 
the uh, uh, convention and becomes the nominee and almost immediately gets off on the wrong foot by nominating Spiro Agnew as his vice presidential nominee. And one of the things that came out later is the fact that even back then, most people felt Spiro Agnew was one of the most crooked politicians ever to be in uh, public office. So Nixon goes through the campaign and, as we've talked about, ends up winning by another small margin, this time on his side. There are issues related to uh, that LBJ was trying to work out a peace treaty. He was trying to work out ceasefires. And there may have been some chicanery going on behind the scenes where Nixon may have been talking through intermediaries with the president of South Vietnam at the time, basically saying, don't do anything right now. Things you'll, you'll get better terms with me as president. Ends up uh, winning. Of course, uh, LBJ is not able to get a real peace treaty and or, or even a ceasefire. Um, anyway, from that point on, Nixon becomes president. And by this point, one of the words, and I know we keep using the word paranoia, and I guess it works based on every all the evidence we have. Nixon, by this point, is purely of the idea that he went from a very idealistic person right after World War II and ends up eventually becoming someone who doesn't trust anyone, barely even trusts his own um, people he works with. What we'll see over time during his presidency is that he loved working through other people. He very seldom would make decisions directly himself or he, he wouldn't be the one to tell people. A lot of what we've heard about comes with that. So immediately becomes president in 69, gets involved trying to end Vietnam, going immediately with that. Unfortunately, 1969 ended up being the worst year as far as American deaths during the Nixon presidency. Uh, statistic is a quarter of all uh, um, all Americans killed during Vietnam during his presidency died at the first few months of 1969. Um, he decides to uh, bomb Cambodia secretly. Yes, we have the chance to uh, do things secretly still back then. Um, bombs Cambodia. It it does come out. And immediately, Henry Kissinger, who ends up floating through all of this throughout, gets him going about how we have to stop these leaks. Somehow the story got out and the first use of wiretapping right at the beginning of his administration. Wiretaps a number of people who were uh, on Kissinger's staff, including people who theoretically were loyal to Kissinger. They never really find out who was the leak at the time. And it's soon after this that while the rioting that we've already talked about was going on, that a, sm a minor staffer in the White House named Tom Houston is asked to um, put up. He says he can come together with a plan to somehow deal with some of these issues from what they were calling the new left to the rioters and all the other situations. So, of course, Houston develops what became known as the Houston plan, even though it was a committee report. His name's not on the report. It's actually a committee of J. Edgar Hoover, head of the CIA and a couple other people. And um, the Houston plan is an interesting document to read. And, yes, it's available. Um, and in June of 1970, this is the plan. Of course, it never gets completely in, in put into place because – Hoover refused to go along with aspects of it. Suddenly, Hoover, even though by this point had been 
done what they called uh, dirty tricks or, or black bag operations, breaking break-ins and everything. Well, the report asked for all these kinds of things to plan. Eventually, parts of it do go into effect, particularly related to um, people who were being used as informants. For example, it used to be they couldn't be they had to be 21 or older. One of the things in the plan is to drop it down to 18 and suddenly that goes into effect. So in by 1970, Nixon is very much in that streak of enemies. And what do we do to to get around our enemies? So by February of 1971, which is only a few months later, this is when he has the taping system installed in February. LBJ, as we know now, was also taping. We did not know that. We didn't know that until long after. Uh, in fact, it was soon after we found out about Nixon's taping system in 73. It was sometime after that that we then discovered that LBJ and then before that JFK had taping as well. Uh, Nixon pulls out JFK, uh, LBJ's when he first comes in, but then in February decides he wants to have a taping system, not necessarily to, to, to do anything other than to have a record of what was discussed. He's a big deal about uh, having records. This is one of the other reasons why we know so much about what went on during Nixon's period of time in the White House and even before. He loved records. Everybody was writing. <laughs> he would dictate Dictaphone, which was a small tape recording system. After at the end of the day, regularly, uh, there were all kinds of memos about everything. Everybody loved writing memos. And so there was a ton of those. H.R. Haldeman, who became his chief of staff, which at that point was still a reasonably new concept, was great on taking notes. In fact, we joked about the 18 and a half minute gap in the taping system. Uh, Haldeman's notes is the only record that still has of what was discussed during that period. And supposedly Watergate was. Um but anyway, so the taping system goes into effect. Nothing much for the first few months, but then in June of 71, the day after his um, daughter, Trisha, is married um, on a Saturday, the Sunday morning, the next day is when the New York Times begins to publish the Pentagon Papers, which, of course, had nothing to do with Nixon um, uh, presidency. It was purely the, the report was written largely by Ellsberg and some other folks because Robert McNamara, the secretary of defense at, during LBJ's term and Kennedy's, wanted a background details about how we got into Vietnam. So Nixon at first, at the first time it comes up, isn't overly concerned about it. It doesn't make him look bad. But then Henry Kissinger once again starts railing about information being available. Why is this stuff happening? And then, of course, as we've already discussed, this leads to the plumbers. And one of the things you hear, especially with the taping systems and all the memos, and this, I think, hits Nixon quite well to sort of finish up where we are. Nixon and many of the people worked about it. I would use the term amoral. They tended to rail about enemies a lot. They talk a lot about what people do to them and what they're going to do to them in return. Of course, the 72 election afterwards, there's major, we're going to get back at all these people who have been quote unquote screwing us. Um, so it's not a big surprise, but at this point in Nixon's, uh, both his, his career as a politician and in the White House during that first term, 
that there were a lot of people who were working to either on not necessarily on cross purposes, but certainly were doing what they thought he wanted them to do because he was one of those folks that would say all kinds of things. And one of the things you read about a lot from other from many of the memory memoirs that have come out, and there's a thousand of them, it seems just about everybody who was either accused or went to jail, wrote a memoir as well after Watergate, um, is that they all had to learn when was he saying something that you had to do something about and when could you ignore it? And I think in many ways, as we'll see with Watergate and some of the other things, sometimes it became out of people weren't always completely sure. And therefore, was uh, he really being honest about wanting certain things done or not? And while the cover up will be a completely different thing, this early period before the break in, the final break in in Watergate, um, a lot of this happened because people just got out of control thinking they were trying to do things that he wanted. And he may well have wanted them in general, but there's no real uh, indication that he knew anything about the actual break in going in to when it happened. Great. Thank you for that. And one of the issues that a lot of us tend to deal with, I think, when we teach this stuff in class is that a lot of people don't really the, the term Watergate has become kind of this massive kind of uh, symbol of, you know, scandal, political, uh, political scandal. And uh, let's talk about exactly what what happened at, at Watergate. What First off, what is what what is Watergate? <laughs> Where does the word come from? And what are we actually talking about here? We've mentioned that there's a break in. What, what exactly happened there? Who wants to who would like to describe the actual break in and what's going on with that? Well, I can continue real quickly because then we can sort of use it as a starting point. Um, one of the things to remember about Watergate and when it happens, while the Pentagon Papers and the plumbers were being used for political and it, you know things during the administration, by the time of Watergate, this was during the middle of the presidential election campaign in 72. So while the Ellsberg break-in was related to Pentagon Papers, Watergate was clearly, from every indication, related to the political campaign. Watergate is a hotel and office complex in Washington, D.C., still exists. It was reasonably new in 1972. And the Democratic National Committee had a office, had their offices in the Watergate. Um, as it turns out, many of the people who were involved in the plumbers were also ended up being involved in this break-in. Um, the Watergate burglars, what they would be known, um, on June 17th, 1972, which is almost 50 years ago or 50, depending on when this comes out, five men were caught inside the Watergate offices of the Democratic National Committee. They had bugging equipment. They had sequential bills and quite a bit of it. They were all wearing gloves. They were three, four of the five were Cuban. One ends up being a member of the committee to reelect the president, Nixon's reelection committee, working for them as a security consultant, as it would later come out. Basically, what happened was somewhere prior to water to this actually happening, there was discussion and we can use the name G. Gordon Liddy as the best example because he was the one who came up with what was known as Project Gemstone. And I know everything's got these names on it, but you get the Houston plan and Project Gemstone. Gemstone was what 
he suggested that the committee to reelect the president did to to assure that Nixon would win reelection. And there were break ins involved and all these kinds of things. And of course, at some point that was supposedly John Mitchell, attorney general, and then head of the committee to reelect the president had said no. But somewhere something changed and nobody knows for absolute certainty who gave the final approval. Um, these men had actually gone into the Watergate prior to June 17th and installed some bugging equipment already. There was transcripts of bugging materials. All that material is still hidden. A lot of it got destroyed after the break-in, but there there are some indications as to what they actually were trying to do. Soon after that, something was going wrong, and so they went in a second time on June 17th. Frank Wills, and I've got to mention his name because in many ways I think he's the true hero of Watergate because if he didn't do what he did, he was a security guard at the Watergate. On the night of June 16th to the 17th in that period of time, he was doing his rounds and he found a piece of masking tape on a door. The idea being that you put the tape over the lock and it keeps the door unlocked. Now, People who were workers might do that during the daytime, for example, when they're going in and out of doors so they don't have to keep unlocking it. But he pulls the tape off, closes the door. Next time he does his rounds through the same area, he discovers the tape is back. And that's what ends up being what had it happen. What happened is he calls the police immediately. And that's when the police show up. Turns out it was an undercover group of policemen. It, the, it was not uniformed. But there was a lookout across the street from the Watergate who immediately notices something bad's going on. It's reasonably well shown in All the President's Men, the movie. But in the end, the Watergate burglars are arrested, and that's where Watergate begins. And then, of course, from that point on, we get into multiple investigations, which would <laughs> we could get into. It would probably take us, you know, we could talk about this for a month to talk about all the various complicated investigations and court cases and all of that. Well, I think the best thing to talk about, the, I think the investigations part of it is to remember that um, this was still the election had not happened. The 72 election, you know, Nixon was obviously going to run for president again, was going to end up winning a reelection in 72 and a landslide. But the first investigations uh, probably more came out of the newspaper than anybody else. We we have now long since, if you've known of all the president's men or Woodward and Bernstein, who even are both around today, they get sometimes too much credit. There were other reporters who were doing incredible amounts of investigating. Everything else was being done behind the scenes. So the first investigations were from the FBI uh, and then from there. And then eventually, as time goes on and more and more things come out, Nixon wins re-election with no problem. It, in fact, many times to this day, people, you know, the people at the time were saying, why did he even do this? There was no reason to. People didn't believe he was involved because they said, why would he need to until now what we know of, of his background? So um, I think so much of the investigating, including what would end up being a Senate investigation, a bunch of trials, and then, of course, impeachment investigations. I can add uh, a little bit to uh, that. Um the, especially, I think uh, I think Joel or at least says that uh, Woodward and Bernstein weren't the only reporters. Um, they were they were they were I think pretty central, um, as was the uh, Senate the Senate Watergate Committee, of course. 
And I think the Senate Watergate Committee is, is pretty uh, interesting group of people, right? There's it's it's bipartisan, but it is uh, spearheaded to a certain extent by uh, Sam Irvin, who's a uh, southern uh, so-called southern southern Democrat. And this kind of uh, dovetails with something that I wanted to add about the Democratic Party um, in the events leading up to the uh, the Watergate break-in and the investigation. In that um, the uh, the new left itself is is kind of uh, beco- becoming a, a question of whether or not you know there is a new left, what the new left is, um, and um, I don't like using the word generational, but there's a historical question here in terms of uh, Southern Democrats uh, leaving the party um, for the Republicans, as we're all uh, familiar with, um, but then those that stayed. And those elder Democrats that stayed are the the new Democrats that we see in the 70s around even before the uh, the Watergate break in, um, not necessarily Watergate babies, even before that. Um, how, what are their relationships with the uh, elder Southern Democrats that remained in the Democratic Party? And this ties back directly into the Centergate Watergate Committee, because Sam Irvin is a pretty staunch Southern Democrat from North Carolina. He actually uh, opposed uh, civil rights legislation. He really uh, was pretty a staunch defender of uh, segregation. Now, there are arguments that he shifted and, and began to differentiate civil rights from uh, civil liberties uh, insofar that, uh, you know, certain aspects of civil liberties um, in, uh, you know, through the Bill of Rights, et cetera, um, shouldn't apply to uh, a variety of groups. But uh, Sam Irvin definitely was a, uh, you know, a uh, or you or at least well before Watergate was an uh, was a, a pro segregationist. But then we also have like, you know, Daniel Wright from Hawaii and uh, Joseph Montoya from uh, New Mexico, also on the uh, on the Senate uh, Watergate Committee. And but then again, we also have uh, Henry Talmadge as well from Georgia. So I think the, the Senate gate, at least for the Democratic side, the Senate, the Senate Watergate Committee and the politics of it are really, really important for understanding the consequences of, uh, of what happens after uh, Watergate. Um, also, I wanted to add, too, that uh, there's several staffers that are uh, that are exactly uh, Denuit from Hawaii. Um, there are several, one of the first Asian uh, so-called self-identified. He was self-identified as Asian American, but he actually self-identified as, as, as Hawaiian. Um um, in Congress. Um, I wanted to mention, too, that there are several staff uh, investigators going on. I mean, we, we think about the Senate Watergate Committee, but a lot of the the, uh, the staffers under these uh, congressmen are um, really doing a lot of the invest, in investigation work. And this ties back into what Joel was saying about, uh, you know, it wasn't just, you know, Woodward and Bernstein. Um, one of the staffers was actually Hillary Clinton. Um, not many, uh, I think not at least it might she was on the impeachment committee yeah exactly not a lot of people know that and um i think it's 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 i think we should note that too um and then uh, i think in terms of i also wanted to add too that the uh, taping systems began with ftr uh i also wanted to note too that in terms of uh woodward and bernstein uh there was Questions, too, regarding uh, their political affiliations uh, towards the end of the uh, their uh, series of articles on Watergate. And um, 
I do know that uh, Woodard came from a, uh, I believe it was a Republican family, something along those lines, but he was, it, 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 there was definitely uh, <laughs> many uh, uh, pundits and commentators were linking them, of course, to the Democratic Party. And then uh, Bernstein, of course, was uh, uh, Democratic, um, I think, pretty explicitly. And then, of course, in terms of the investigation, we also have Deep Throat, correct? And, uh, you know, that, that turned out to be uh, Mark Felt. Um, and uh, I think it was Joel that uh, uh, sort of mentioned and discussed the, uh, the sort of the, the body bag jaws by the FBI. Uh, Felt was kind of involved in all of that uh, in the early 70s. And he actually received a lot of support from Nixon after Watergate um, because he was actually brought to trial. And uh, and then subsequently pardoned by Reagan, uh, Felt himself was a Democrat during the 70s. Uh, that then, after Reagan's pardon, becomes a uh, becomes a uh, Republican. So I, I do think, in terms of the investigation and the politics of the investigation, I think is important in understanding uh, what happens after. Yeah, he was overlooked by that. That's correct. And uh, I think. You know, I, I do want to uh, mention one more thing about Felt in terms of him being overlooked for the FBI. There's uh, there's evidence uh, through the tapes that uh, that there was numerous numerous people um, in the Nixon administration that were questioning Felt as the source of the leak, uh, not just to the Post but also to the New York Times and several other newspapers. Now, the 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 issue with that, putting that in context, was that there's also evidence on the tapes. That in terms, I think we're calling it paranoia uh, of Nixon questioning basically everybody as as the leak. I mean, if you if you know you, you can one can argue that uh, Nixon anticipated uh, and Holden and everybody else anticipated felt as uh, the source for the for the post stories. But you know if you if if you actually uh, you know look at some of the studies, secondary source studies, as well as the tapes transcriptions of the tapes themselves, he's actually you know, accusing a variety of people for their, uh, not just for the taste, but for their loyalty in general to him and uses the word loyalty over and over again. Uh, so, you know, it, it, you know, and then later on, he seems to be really, really cozy with Felt. Um, I think he like sends him gifts or something along those lines in the late 70s and early 80s. This is Nixon sending Felt gifts. So I, it, it, it's a historical question as to how much, uh, uh, the Nixon administration kind of saw felt as a potential uh, leak and as a potential uh, candidate uh, for deep throat. This is Mike again. And I was just going to um, uh, chime in there because it's like, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Because felt felt knew a lot about what was going on. Because remember, um, just like four or five days after the break in, you know, uh, Halderman and, and Nixon are on the tapes and they're taught. This is the considered the quote unquote, the smoking gun. Where, um, you know, uh, Nixon uh, tells uh, Haldeman to call, you know, the head of the FBI and say, you know, you know, we need you to stop investigating this because the break in that is because, of course, you know, this is a CIA operation and, you know, you know, and um, so, you know, felt it's later. This makes a lot more sense. But actually what, what, what it's important to note that what, what Woodward and Bernstein always are careful to mention was that felt while felt was a source they actually he was actually a, a um uh, somebody who verified things he didn't really give them as much information as he verified pretty much everything that woodward and bernstein 
uh, at certain points obtained. And so, you know, uh, he in some ways, you know, felt that's kind of a way that felt could always say that, well, I didn't really turn over information as much as I verified, you know, what was going on. I mean, that's where, you know, back in the days where, you know, in journalism, where if you had something, you needed two verifications. And, um, you know, this is what, um, you know, this is this is what we should probably go through through today. Um, the other question I was going to say is that you guys mentioned this, too, and I think that it was important was that, you know, it wasn't really the public. I want to get your impressions of this because I don't think the public was really paying much attention to this until in March of 1973 when the Senate begins the uh, hearings uh, tape, you know, on live television. Um, and, and they go. I don't remember how long they went on for. Um I was very young at the time. Let's just put it that way. Um, I remember watching them because I think I was home from school one day and there was nothing else on. Uh, but, you know, so much for the flu. And um, but I was wondering if um, um, I think it's the Watergate hearings. Does that spawn the uh, development for the special prosecutor that later comes about uh, in 1973? Actually, the special prosecutor came out from when. The in in earlier 1973, when James McCord, after the first Watergate trial, where it was the burglars and Hunt and Liddy, he wrote a letter to Judge Sirica, who was the judge on the case, announcing that people had lied. People had um, there was a lot of information. By that point, the Senate had already formed a committee, but that helped to take it off. Um, there's no question that putting the, the, the hearings on television helped. This was not the first time that happened. Nixon, uh, during uh, the McCarthy hearings, were often on television. The House on American Activities Committee were under. So basically the investigations were – very many investigations would show up on television. And But yes, there's no question because all the channels covered it. PBS at night would show the recordings for people who were working um, and if actually they're all still available online, you, you can actually watch them even now if you want. Um, so, yes, there's no question that that really went a long way to bringing it to the public attention. Of course, they the, the, the main hearings didn't start until May on TV. The committee had already been working. And by that point, uh, Nixon had already fired many of his people at the in April, Haldeman, Ehrlichman and Dean. Of course, we don't. It's the Watergate committee hearings that finds the taping system in August or July or August. Uh, a reasonably small staffer who they were just interviewing in passing. They thought there might be some taping going on because of some of the things that they were hearing from some of the witnesses. But as it turns out, uh, this small staffer, Alexander Butterfield, and in fact, it's probably Woodward's last book on um, Watergate is, is related to Alexander Butterfield. He wrote a book about him after this all ended, or reasonably recently, but Butterfield's still alive. Um, the taping system is announced, and that's when things really took off. From that point on, the taping system, once we know the taping system exists, from that point on, that's where everything goes, because suddenly everybody wants the tapes. That's when the courts get involved in detail. And we go from there to the end, to the impeachment investigation. Uh, when Nixon loses the tapes um, at it to the Supreme Court, loses the, the, the case, he knows the jig is up. They announce that they have this one tape. They put out the smoking gun tape that that you've already mentioned. And soon after that is when Nixon resigns. 
I just wanted to uh, reiterate, I think, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure I see half of all of us, we're not trying to uh, completely downplay uh, Woodward and Bernstein. They are very, very, very central, I think, at least to uh, initiating the, uh, the uh, well, several investigations, um, including the uh, Senate uh, investigation, too. In terms of people watching TV, I think also uh, in uh, 73, 74, I mean, we have the, I, yeah, I don't mean to uh, beat a dead horse here, but uh, there's also the, the oil crisis going on. I mean, there's several issues, right, in, in U.S. and world politics that we've discussed. But uh, definitely people are, are freaking out a little bit about the, uh, the, the oil crisis and the various measures that the federal, state, and municipal authorities are taking to uh, mitigate the oil crisis. And I think uh, a lot of people um, are also watching, too, for... Uh, um, sort of, there's a, as we've already discussed, a, a burgeoning environmental consciousness that, um, I mean, I actually assign in a class for another school um, interviews uh, uh, on news shows with people uh, um, talking both about Watergate, but then also talking about the oil crisis. People kind of talk about Watergate and um, they become more and more, you know, in the news stories, uh, the, the television uh, reporters become more and more focused on Watergate. Um, as the investigation proceeds, particularly when the, as I think Joel noted, that the the tapes the tapes are released, but then they're also talking about uh, the 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 economy and uh, the uh, the lack of fuel or uh, the, their their uh, impediments to uh, accessing fuel, um, and that uh, I think if there are people watching TV, and of course you know there's what's going on in the world. Um, from Cambodia to Vietnam, China. All right, well, thank you for that summary of the investigations and all that. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the longer-term consequences of, of Watergate. I mean, the, the, beyond just the simplistic <laughs> naming convention that we have every time there's a political scandal where we just slap the name Gate at the end of it just to try to um, uh, you know, glamorize or, or, or um, exaggerate the importance of political scandals and all that, but let's talk about some of the uh, longer-term consequences of uh, of Watergate. What did what did this event and the follow-up investigations and all that? What did that mean for American politics in the long term? Yeah, for Republicans, I've, it's kind of an interesting thing. I always wonder um, what the legacy of Nixon would be without Watergate, right? Because he had all you know. We talked about the EPA. We talked about kind of his mix of uh, you know states' rights kind of things, while still maybe not embracing the New Deal, but at least kind of, you know, acknowledging the importance of the New Deal and kind of acting as this bridge, acting as this uh, transition between um, this kind of the old, um, you could say, liberal uh, organization versus this new emerging uh, right-wing conservatism. And I, I wonder if, you know, the Nixon would be a more popular Republican without Watergate. I know this is a little bit of speculation, but you know, he really did shape the direction of the Republican Party. And I almost wonder, you know, if, if it wasn't for Watergate, would he have, you know, w- would we have a different Republican Party, number one, uh, and would he have a more prominent place in it, right? Because I think that really um, kind of damaged his his uh, stock among Republicans, right? He almost became a, a joke among Democrats, but it really kind of damaged his stock among Republicans, uh, even though he really was this driving force in creating this new party, right, and kind of redirecting the party and making it, you know, out of the ashes of, of 1964, you know, he really kind of resurrected it. And, you know, he, he I, I almost, um, 
you know, I hesitate to give Nixon Nixon credit for things, right? But but you know, I say he almost kind of deserves credit for his his politicking, if nothing else, right? And for kind of rebuilding the party. And I think Watergate really uh, obviously destroyed his legacy. But I almost wonder what it would be without Watergate, right? Would we think of him as um, you know, not as, as a as a crook and as a you know almost a joke in some cases, but you know, would it be this? leader of this this new Republican Party, kind of the creator of this new Republican coalition. Um, just to quickly add to that, um, uh, uh, is the, uh, Eric's right? Because, you know, uh, the Southern strategy, as it was called, um, Nixon really uh, begins in 1966 to um, not only is he trying to get named, but he really works in those congressional races uh, across the country. And the Republicans make a strong comeback in congressional races in 1966. Uh, but at the same time, uh, through the 70s and 80s, you know, you start to see this change in the uh, South in particular where – and by the 1980s, you definitely see the change where uh, the Democrats, those so-called Southern Democrats uh, – I mean I'm not trying to you know, I'm not trying to poke fun, and maybe this can serve as a bridge to what Ryan will later say, was that you know, those Democrats in the South who were these conservative Southern Democrats who had – you know, we're, we're kind of ending that uh, long period of the solid South as, you know, the, the place where the Democrats were. And by the 1980s, you know, uh, we're seeing this switch where um, you don't see people identifying themselves anymore as liberal Republicans and, conserv and conservative Democrats. You know, it's, you know, by the end of the century, I mean, I would say definitely say that, you know, Today, if you say if somebody says that they're a Democrat, you have a preconceived notion of what that means, and that pretty much means anything. I mean, I can't say anything, but it pretty much can confirm to anything nationwide. The same thing with Republicans, um, and we identify, and, and so we do have this uh, split within within each party where uh, the conservatives from the Democratic side sort of end up moving more toward the Republicans and the Republican liberal Republicans from the Republican sides tend moving more toward the Democrats. Um, and it's to the point now where in New England today, for example, from New York North uh, into New England, there are no representatives in Congress that are Republicans anymore. Uh, there was one, uh, but there haven't, but that was kind of a one-off I would say, because mostly most of the Senate uh, members of the Senate and the members of the House are uh, Democrats, and in the South, in a lot of places too, you don't see a lot of uh, uh, Democrats uh, uh, that are quote conservative Democrats, and uh, and those people that run in those areas as Republicans and Democrats are running on the identification that is uh, present today. You know, you wouldn't see too much of a crossover. In some areas uh, where, you know, the old liberal Republicans in New England, uh, there are I lived in New England. There are a few, but not that many. So, I mean, I don't know. People can confirm that uh, later on. So, I mean, let's uh, spinning off of that. I can elaborate a little bit on uh, that, on uh, the uh, pertinent issues that uh, I think Jack uh, brought up um, from the outset. I do want to say that, uh, for example, Michael J. Harrington, um, from Massachusetts, who's one of the, the Democrats that uh, Jack was mentioning, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on uh, curbing war powers. Um, and uh, of course, we have the, the Privacy Act and federal the federal registry and uh, how much the, the, the federal government, right, and even state governments, too, and municipal governments know about you and can release information on you. And I think uh, 
to a certain extent, uh, the uh, the uh, the wave of Democrats, uh, you know, both before uh, Watergate, uh, yeah, the the Privacy Act in '74, uh, the uh, the wave of Democrats that we see. Um, you know, there's an emphasis on the so-called Watergate babies, which, you know, the so named because they came in, uh, you know, in the midterm elections after uh, in uh, 74 after uh, Watergate. But actually, there, there, there was, uh, uh, you know, the, the Democrats were kind of uh, um, maintaining or at least younger Democrats. So in quotes, uh, were uh, gaining seats in Congress at that time. I mean, the uh, Congressional War Powers Resolution was actually passed or actually proposed in um, 73. Uh, and then they also, uh, in 74, the Congressional uh, Budget Office is uh, established. And then of 74, again, we also have the Privacy Act restrictions. Um, and again, uh, there's, there's again, this, this focus on what the government, federal, not just the, the knowledge of the federal government has on you and in terms of surveillance, but also uh, what they can release to uh, uh, not just the domestic news media, but people around the world. Uh, and then, of course, in the so the mid to late 70s, there's uh, a, a, burg a, a burgeoning focus on, uh, you know, this kind of distinction between overt and covert action and uh, CIA uh, expenditures by the CIA. And I think Michael J. Harrington from uh, Massachusetts, not the uh, the Michael Harrington uh, from the other America, Michael uh, Harrington, that was the basis of the war on poverty. But this is uh, Michael J. Harrington from Massachusetts really uh, came out and uh critiqued all this uh, kind of covert uh, funding going on. And um, I think collectively, th these are no these Democrats were known as the Watergate babies. But again, I want to emphasize uh, some of them gained their seats before Watergate. And it wasn't just in the House of Representatives. Too. I mean, we, we're, we're kind of connecting with House Representatives. There's a lot of uh, research now, and I'm sure every, you know, all the panelists here and, um, you know, some of our listeners are familiar with. Um, but um, you know, here in California, we had Jerry Brown, right, uh, was elected. And then in uh, Massachusetts, I think people are aware of the, the governor, uh, Michael uh, Dukakis. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, we have uh, Governor Grasso in, in Connecticut and uh, Gary Hart in Colorado. And um, I mean, I can just go a, a slew of uh, of uh, peoples elected that were um not just um, into the House of Representatives, but um, but also to uh, state governments. Uh, there's a question on the chat about Bill Clinton in Arkansas. Bill Bill Clinton actually uh, lost his his uh, his uh, first go around uh, for uh, federal Congress, um, purportedly because purportedly because um, it was a uh, it was a pretty red uh, district that he ran in. Um, but I think that, that warrants, I think, further inquiry. So uh, they really there was this idea that uh, when these Democrats came into office and again, I, I've addressed and I do want to do want to emphasize that the, the focus on the federal level with the Privacy Acts and, you know, you know, the Congressional War Powers Resolution, the budget, all of that, that that is directly spinning out of Watergate that I mean and, and the moniker of Watergate babies I think is appropriate uh, for those reasons but again there's more uh, more research too on another side of things I mean we have uh, Michael J Harrington for example 
establishes, not, you know, along with criticizing the CIA, um, yeah, curbing the power of the presidency, the imperial presidency, and, cha and challenging the idea of the, the imperial presidency started, uh, many historians argue, or at least expanded by uh, Truman, who was a Democrat, um, ironically. But uh, Michael J. Harrington also organizes the uh, Congressional uh, Coalition of Democrats uh, to uh, to uh, change uh, federal subsidies and formulas for uh, federal subsidies to uh, foster more kind of regional uh, economic planning. Um, the idea here was uh, to use uh, uh, federal federal funds to uh, to really expand, uh, you know, uh, certain sectors. And eventually, as, as we all know, uh, certain sectors uh, becomes uh, becomes tech. Um, and, and I'll get into that in, 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 in a second. I do want to uh, reiterate that there is a politics of austerity here, right? Uh, a, a, a major uh, politics of austerity here with, uh, you know, Dukakis, I think, you know, in Massachusetts, he's like, I think he's, he's like on the streetcar going to work or whatever. And he's not, you know, out there spending all this money. And I think uh, that's, that's also part, part and parcel too with Watergate. Watergate is looked at not just as the federal government kind of, you know, uh, this kind of corrupt federal government, but it's also becomes, I think, in popular consciousness, the embodiment of too, uh, of too much, uh, not just this too much government, but just too much power, particularly in the presidency. Because actually, they they use government. They, these Democrats are actually using government to uh, to mobilize, uh, um, you know, uh, federal funds. And this a lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, they they turn to the Southern Growth uh, Policies Board, the SGPB, uh, which is based at the North Carolina's Research Triangle Institute. Um, and uh, I think. The idea here, both on the federal state state level, is uh, is to take uh, you know provide subsidies basically for uh, startups in the in the private sector, and this is it, it's much more complicated and it's much more longer. And I can go much more detail if you want, but I'm just going to do this in a nutshell. Um, and take federal, state, and local subsidies and uh, sort of jumpstart certain uh, private post post industrial. Uh, uh, endeavors and uh, a lot of that uh, initially becomes tech okay now where where do these uh, federal state and local subsidies come from a lot of them come from actually property taxes okay and uh, not just uh, the property taxes for these startups but it also could just be widespread property taxes like in you know basically real estate taxes and um, that that turns into kind of a supply loop where uh, property taxes are raised, the, the, the revenue from the taxes are then put into new post-industrial sectors. And there's a lot of emphasis uh, from, uh, uh, you know, from Southern, they, they actually uh, consult uh, uh, Southern advisors who, who argue that this plan will generate some sort of post-racial future that, uh, that, that, you know that this is that this will work that 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 you know uh, taking uh you know state funds and expanding it will work and it'll also it also solve certain uh you know racial tensions that you see like in massachusetts in 74 and i think uh 
to a certain extent, there's a lot of criticism of uh, using the funds for any kind of industrial infrastructure, right? I mean, there's issues with infrastructure, as we all know, or funding it. But uh, I think there's there's definitely a de-emphasis on using state and federal funds for uh, industrial expansion. So the the the, uh, the, the I'm sure the idea and uh, 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 and word that you are familiar with post-industrial comes into play, right? Um, I do want to note here too that in terms of many of the uh, so-called Southern advisors in Congress that are um, that are promoting this and promoting uh, the the, uh, the Northeast and the the, the West um, um, implementing this plan, uh, you know. There are uh, questions regarding their ongoing historical questions regarding the relationship. I mean, we have um, Kennedy's uh, former uh, Commerce Secretary, uh, the North Carolina, I believe he was North Carolina governor, uh, uh, Luther Hodges. Uh, He was a a bridge between the uh, Southern Democrats, uh, the so-called Southern Democrats who remained in the party, as many of them were leaving for the Republican Party, as we've noted, um, and these kind of new I suppose New South, I don't like using the moniker New South, but New South Democrats like uh, Jimmy Carter, who headed up that uh, that uh, SPG board that I mentioned. And uh, really, uh, they uh, so so there's certain key kind of older Southern Democrat figures that are acting as a bridge and introducing uh, other, you know, congressmen like Dukakis for not Congress. Governors like Dukakis and uh, congressmen like Michael J. Harrington to these uh, young, these uh, younger Southern Democrats and the Southern Democrats. When I say younger, I mean some of these people are in their like 40s and 50s. So how about new Southern Democrats in Congress to uh, to uh, congressmen uh, from the Northeast and from like California, et cetera, et cetera. I do want to emphasize here that that there's much ado has been made about them and these these Southern kind of uh, consultants arguing that there's there's going to be kind of a, a post-racial future where if, you know, if we can get through property taxes and other modes of revenue, uh, state governments and municipal governments, even the federal government can uh, revive uh, post-industrial economies, uh, particularly through uh, subsidizing uh, the tech sector. Um, well, you know, there's temporalities here. Uh, there's an argument that later on they de-emphasize uh, funding for or they emphasize a focus for on civil rights legislation or social uh, welfare policy or any kind of social welfare and focus more and more on this plan to uh, to fund uh, what amounts to tech startups. And um, I think. I think that there, ne- there wasn't necessarily a change through time, though, I think. Um, if you play around, there was they were playing around with the temporalities. There's just more of an emphasis on the future. There's a lot of ideas of futurism that are circulating, and that the future that you know this will work, right? There, there's a, there's a hope that this will work, and uh, you know that that these that these these post-industrial plans will revive the economy, and um, not just the economy, but that's also linked to uh, racial tensions too. Okay. Um, so I think in terms of that, we, we, we really uh, we head into the late 70s. And I do want to uh, to 
once again, uh, kind of um, uh, at the risk of redundancy, um, remind you, remind uh, listeners that 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 the, that these plans coming out of Watergate really, really, uh, they, they pertain to Watergate because, again, it was this new idea that that Watergate was linked to a kind of a government, an old decrepit government that had become corrupt, that 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 had spent too much. Or not so much spent too much, but had approached fiscal and monetary policy uh, in error. And uh, I think a lot of these new Democrats saw themselves as, or, or at least saw some of their ideas uh, as as solving and repudiating what came before. And so Watergate becomes kind of a benchmark for this. Okay. Now their plan pivots again, I think, on a variety of sources of revenue to. Uh, to subsidize what amounts to the, the tech sector um, and other post-industrial uh, um, economic avenues. But it, it, they do rely on tax revenue. And that only actually works for a few years because in the late 70s and early 80s, we see um, on both sides of the political aisle, um, voters uh, rebelling. We have the so-called tax revolts that are very crucial for understanding what comes after the late 70s and 80s, uh, particularly with the Democratic Party. And but I mean, it. but we're talking about tax revolts on both sides of the political aisle. And a lot of uh, the voters, you know, they don't know. They're not as familiar with these plans that they're doing with the tech startups. I mean, I know, like, for in California, they have Jerry Brown talking to community colleges about how he's going to introduce computers to the community colleges and all this. Uh, but you know, a lot of the voters are, you know, are paying these part of this plan is are, are increased property taxes specifically. And a lot of voters aren't into that. Um, I think it starts, uh, you know, it, the, the, the tax revolts actually start um, uh, really in the South, but um, kind of go up to Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, Dukakis is kind of thrown out of office for that reason and, and a couple other reasons. Um, and then in the early 80s moves to Jerry Brown. So this Post-Watergate plan by these young Democrats uh, does pivot, I think, to a certain extent on uh, taxes uh, uh, to subsidize tech startups, and that kind of goes away. Second, uh, in the long term, too, is, uh, you know, how, you know, who are we subsidizing? Um, how long um, were, are these subsidies supposed to last for? Uh, you know, are, are these, are these you know, like in Massachusetts, for example, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the uh, technology organizations were both uh, were, were were joined together, uh, were kind of a jointly implemented by the state government and by uh, private investors. And I know that um, in terms of audits and auditing, because if there was kind of a government influence, there you know there wasn't a a uh, you know government auditing wasn't seen as necessary, and there's a lot of conflict over that later on. Um, but in some, uh, I do think Watergate, at least for the Democrats, is really a watershed because even though the, their initial plans because of the tax revolts aren't implemented, um, you know, as, as they initially foresaw, and there are changes in the Democratic Party through the 80s with the DLC and Clinton, um, you, you know, it, it was a, 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 a watershed um, and this kind of idea that a new generation is coming about. And um, as Jack mentioned, uh, this we are now the Democratic Party and, you know, all these kind of 
previous labels will go away and we are now the Democratic Party. And was that the fulfillment of the sort of the new left? Is this the new left or what is this? I think that's an ongoing historical debate. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't really thought about all of the uh, kind of nuts and bolts of the new Democratic Party. So that's great. Thank you for those examples. Um, Just since we are getting a little uh, long on time, uh, I just figured I'd give the opportunity to uh, the rest of you to see if 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 uh, you had any last thoughts you wanted to say on the uh, influence or the kind of long term consequences of Watergate. Um, Adam, did you have anything to add on that? Yeah, uh, so. I guess with Watergate, one of the long or one term uh, long term lasting legacies for this is that every presidential scandal is going to be compared to it. And the idea or the question is, is that uh, will it be enough to bring the the downfall of an administration? And in that regard, you have uh, like under Reagan, you had Iran Contra. Oh, that was, you know, a really big scandal. But he his administration weathered it and moved on. With Nixon, oh, I guess it's the it was uh, Watergate was sort of a, a means to an end. And as we talked about earlier, the issue of how Nixon achieved political office, how he acted uh, to uh, secure his uh, his political future, I think he felt like he needed to do Watergate in order to ensure that uh, they didn't have anything that they could use against him. Uh, and in that regard, uh, this Nixon's always kind of played, uh, you know, a little fast and loose uh, in order to uh, to achieve uh, political success. And uh, so when we compare Watergate to, uh, you know, uh, I like the last I like Trump's administration. The idea, the question is, is, you know, uh, how far can executive privilege really go? And uh do the people have a right to know or, uh, you know, uh, whenever we talk about conspiracies and cover ups and and all this, Watergate is always going to kind of uh, rise to the top as sort of this benchmark that everything's going to get compared against or to. And I think in many ways, it really damages uh, Nixon's legacy because under his administration, you know, you do have the, the EPA, you have the Clean Water Act, uh, the uh, and one of the things that he was working or fighting against was the rising tide of inflation. Uh, and so taking the country off the gold standard, opening up relations with uh, Moscow and Beijing, trying to uh, to do so many things. So I think even under his administration, they uh, lowered the voting age from uh, 21 to 18 uh, in an effort to try to make it more inclusive, to get more people involved. While at the same time, you know, he, uh, you have the, the conspiracies that are in the background uh, that kind of taint everything. So. The legacy is, you know, really uh, it's kind of going to characterize every administration that follows after it because it it's just going to kind of be the specter that haunts them in the background about what they do. And is it have they gone too far? And then uh, how will the American people react? Thank you. And uh, Mike, did you have any last thoughts on this? Oh, sorry, I did unmute myself there. But, yeah, I think he's absolutely right, because I think that um, the. just as a short thing is that, um, you know, we do have this this kind of shift now in in politics, partly due to that southern strategy. Um, and of course, uh, um, we have a lot of um, in the 80s and in the 90s, we have a lot of, quote unquote, party building activities that sort of reinforce this. 
But at the same time, I think one of the lessons, if, we have, if there are lessons to be learned from Watergate, is that um, one of the things that we can say uh, from Watergate is that, you know, we know that the system worked uh, at that time. Um, you know, uh, Nixon uh, went, uh, you know, went all the way with a lot of these issues to um, uh, try to keep things like, like um, Adam was saying, trying to keep, you know, things with executive privilege and so forth. Um, but, you know, uh, the, even the Supreme Court eventually came in and said, look, you know, yes, there's a, there is a executive privilege, but it doesn't apply. You know, they kind of defined it at that time, which would help be helpful later on when we come across, you know, not only the Clinton impeachment, but later the two impeachments of um, uh, Donald Trump. And uh, they, they also defined, and I think this kind of, we have this sort of new kind of uh, um, political atmosphere that emerges with the press because, um, you know, from the beginning, you know, here you have um, the Nixon administration who really become, gets at, you know, starts to believe that they're really at war with the press. And uh, the press, you know, uh, wins, you know, we go all the way to the Supreme Court with um, – New York Times versus the United States, you know, in a six to three decision, the, you know, the government cannot, for the first time in history, the federal government goes to court to prevent something like the Pentagon Papers from being printed. And, you know, this is, again, at the very beginning where Nixon has this, this you know, thinks we're going to plug these leaks. And, um, you know, because the Pentagon Papers, of course, being the biggest leak of all. And, um it had nothing to do with Nixon, but it was this this mentality that you know we you know that um, uh, we're in this Cold War and we have to you know um, keep a grasp and, and keep control of things. And um, I think that uh, what happened, of course, was that uh, you know the press we found that you know uh, there is uh, are certain rights out there that the press has, and that. Um, um, you know, we could talk about dynamics and things later. We just don't have enough time. But I think that we do have that that uh, notice that um, since then the press becomes sort of uh, um, among it can become sort of an enemy to many uh, administrations, and it becomes sort of a friend, if you will, in some ways. But um, every administration since then, you know, uh, from Carter to um, Carter to Reagan to um, even to uh, Trump, you know, has to in some way, you know, begin to fight the press. Um, uh, the one thing that the uh, Clinton administration did was to expand the press office to the communications office. Um, and, um, you know, the president, uh, even today, uh, no matter where he is, no matter what happens in the world, now has to respond to things that are happening. Uh, in the world, uh, in a mo on a moment's notice. I mean, you know. So that's just something to think about. Um, thank you, everybody. Yeah, and thank you. And um, <clears throat> let's see. I guess just uh, Joel, since you kind of started us off here with all of this stuff, did you have any any uh, last thoughts really quickly before we sign off? I think one of the things we have to be careful about always is not giving Watergate too much credit, but making sure that we give it the proper credit. I know that's easy to say and hard to do. Um, there is no question that Watergate eroded people's trust in government. It had already started with the Vietnam War, although that was less widespread because 
you know, there were a number of people right to the very end who supported the war. But we started to see more and more about what was being kept secret or ended up, you know, as, as the Pentagon Papers proved, there was a lot of things going on we didn't know about. But Watergate, in many ways, made it worse because Watergate begot the pardon of Nixon by Ford, which definitely upset a lot of people. We then had the Intelligence Committee hearings going on that investigated the FBI, the CIA, and we saw a lot of information come out about that, particularly the assassination plots against Castro. All of these are things that were going on at all times that we never knew about. And as we started to see more and more of these things come out, that belief in government or that trust in, especially on the federal level, begins to wane. Uh, the assassin, uh, excuse me, the intelligence committee hearings, they do a report dealing with uh, the JFK assassination and what the intelligence committees did or did not do during that investigation which actually led to the House Select Committee on Assassinations that examined both Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy's death. And as somebody, I think, pointed out earlier, this is where we, the, these congressional hearings become not that they weren't important in the past. We saw it during Nixon's t when he was in Congress and we saw it before that we uh, House uh, congressional committees. Fact-finding committees are, are a long process in the government, in the country. But one would lead to the other, and then as as happened, once we get into uh, a well-loved president by many people, Reagan, he was actually able to weather the storm, I think partly because he was liked so well. I really do believe that uh, Nixon brought on some of it himself just because of the way people felt about him. But anyway um, – and and we've gone from there. It's not there has not been a single president who has not had to have some investigation, some bigger, some smaller. The concept of special prosecutors, even though they were used before Watergate, not really that often. Watergate brought that out. So how we uh, keep track of what the government's doing. There was a period of time where clearly the Congress was stronger than the than the administration, than the than the presidency, the, the office of the president during this period. I don't think anybody could disagree that Ford and, and Carter had their uh, weaker, you know, or much weaker presidents wise. Reagan would bring back the other, the strength of the president of the office. But all of these things came out of Watergate and even to the present time. There is so much material available. One of the other things that is secondary to this is how much information there is about Watergate. And I think this is where we start to see more and more that we get to hear different points of view from different people who were involved, that there's so much primary source material available at Watergate that people can get to and the Nixon White House and then going forward. A Nixon lost court battles to try to protect the tapes and these are things that we now have access to that anybody can use for any kind of investigation or just to learn more. And I think that's one of the other positives that came out of Watergate, where we want more information. And some of these uh, hearings and then later investigations went a long way to coming up with the idea that more information is always better than less. More knowledge is always better than less. And I would say in many ways that would probably be one of the more positive aspects of what came out of Watergate. Well, I really like the idea of ending it on a positive note. <laughs> so let's uh, end it there. So uh, 
thank you all for agreeing to talk about the uh, uh, Watergate and its, you know, its context and its uh, consequences. And I uh, greatly appreciate you all joining in. And uh, thank you for uh, for all your time. Thanks a lot, Rob, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Google Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us an email to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Jack Green, Eric Morganson, Ryan Tripp, Adam Lehman, and Joel Cherney, I am Rob Denning, and now I'm going to include 18 and a half minutes of silence in commemoration of Richard Nixon.
Thank you.